Hello and welcome to episode 39 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by my archaeological brother from another mother, Lee Grana. Having spent many years in commercial archaeology, Lee is now in the final stages of his PhD on fishing in Rome, Britain, which he's been undertaking at the University of Reading. So we're tackling that on today's show, pun intended. We also chat about how he spent this summer excavating in Pompeii and his other major area of research, experimental archaeology, by which I mean recreating items from the past to test them out to see how they actually worked. Often we get descriptions of things in the textual record or people believe or people presume how objects work from what remains in the archaeological record, but as Lee discusses today, it's only really by actually manufacturing these things, preferably in the way they would have been done in the past, and then testing them out, we can actually establish whether or not this is the case. And more often than not, actually, we find that what we thought or how we believed things worked is not actually how they do in practice. Also last year, Lee organised a theoretical Roman archaeology conference workshop at Vindolanda at Hadrian's Wall, which brought together people making Roman food, instruments and clothing. So we're chatting about that as well as the hurdles this area of study faces to be accepted in academia. Also how it's an effective tool for public engagement, and how Lee was first inspired to get involved in experimental archaeology after watching someone flint napping. Now, I apologise in advance, as the recording is affected by wind at times, as we recorded this outside at London Docklands, having gone to see the Secret Rivers exhibit at the Museum of London Docklands, which I would actually recommend you go and check out. We did move halfway through to a more sheltered location, which also happened to have a bar, which is why there's a shift in sound halfway through. But hey, that's the perils of trying to record on a shoestring budget. Now, before getting into the show, just a reminder, on the 27th to the 28th of September, it's the Emerge Festival in London, where various galleries, museums and cultural landmarks are open late to provide a mix of what is described on their website as Night at the Museum meets Glastonbury. I'm going to be talking Mithras at, surprise, surprise, the London Mithraeum on the Friday, so if you're interested, have a look on the website uh, about the event at emergefestival.co.uk, which is also where you can purchase tickets. And so, as always, thank you for joining me, and now on to the show. usually residing in Spain, but you're back in London for a bit of excavation. I'm a jet setter, I'm everywhere. There you are. Yeah. I mean, before that as well, before being in London, you were in Pompeii for a while. I mean, that's that's got to be the place to start at the moment. You got to live every Roman archaeologist's dream of uh, digging, in, digging in Pompeii, the holy land of Roman archaeology, we might say, other than the holy land itself. <laughs> it was the holy land, yeah, it was. Um, I've never been to the holy land itself, so I'd like to compare the two. As a human and as an archaeologist, as a Romanist, Pompeii was something else. Yeah, I mean, you can't describe it. It's uh... digging there was weird. It was really weird because you think that you're when you go there, you get the job, uh, you're so excited, and you think, oh, I'm going to spend 20 hours a day there. As soon as the excavation's finished, I'm going to walk around the city. I'm going to see every single detail that no one's seen before. But the problem is, after eight hours of excavation, you're knackered. So mm. you're in commuter mode. You walk back to the station. You go back home. You shower. You fall asleep. Next day, same thing again. And you forget that you're working in this amazing city. 
So it's good once in a while to disconnect from the archaeology itself and reconnect with the rest of the archaeology that's outside of the excavation. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a big difference. What were you actually doing in Pompeii? What was the aim of... Garden archaeology. Some people call it uh, hippie archaeology still, <laughs> uh, which it's not, but it is... Um... I've definitely met a few hippie archaeologists. So, oh, okay, uh, yeah. You work well, for OA, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's slightly different. There's, there's hippie, there's hipster, there's crazy... But no, garden archaeology is, is fascinating because, uh, you know, working in commercial, you've done rural, urban, you do a bit of everything. This is almost rural archaeology within an urban setting. Uh, so you're trying to identify the smallest detail in a small area, um, and it's all soils. Well, that's at least, theoretically, you think everything is soil. You're, you're looking at different layers, lenses of soil. But you're inside a walled area that could have earlier structures and did have earlier structures underneath. Um, but yeah, we were looking for a garden, a Roman garden. There are different types of Roman gardens. If you go to Pompeii, you can see examples of all of them. And uh, we weren't sure if this was an area that was being cultivated or an area that was a pleasure garden. But it's, I should say, the house of uh, Regina Carolina, uh, okay. Queen Caroline. And... Um, this garden is one of the largest in Pompeii, if not the largest, and it's unclear how it was being used. So, Kathy Gleason, um, who is a garden archaeologist of uh, many decades of experience, wanted to identify the potential um, garden plots, let's say, that she thought might be there. And they were. We found six uh, lapilli filled cavities so when Vesuvius erupted it would have incinerated the plants or trees or uh, cultivated lands destroyed the roots and they would have been filled with small pumice stones and other uh, volcanic stones such as lapilli and that's what you find so we did some casts of these root cavities and we had two rows and a third further north in one of the trenches which we haven't yet identified in the others uh, but it shows that there is some kind of organization. They are planting uh, plants equal at equal distance. So that kind of inc it suggests that it might have been a pleasure garden. Okay. Just the way it was set up. But of course we don't know. And this was a short season of excavation. And the first, um, second season for that site, but the first large-scale excavation within that insular. So it's, uh, yeah, early days. Is that going to be carrying on in future years as well? That's I guess? the plan. Uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see a few more excavations. Uh, there may be some earlier uh, structures coming up, so we might have some archaeology of uh, early Roman Pompeii, uh, pre-earthquake um, Pompeii, which is very interesting to a lot of archaeologists, and uh, and it will tell us more about this insula and why it's so large and what happened to it uh, before its expansion into this large villa with a, a beautiful garden. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, Ken Patty Baker, her main research focus at the moment is on Roman gardens and particularly the, you might say the, the mental impact they have as well. Obviously, you live in a town much like in the modern period where you live in a town, the kind of hustle and bustle of it. I mean, we're actually literally recording this in Docklands, which is yeah. a hustly and bustly area. You, you want to find these spaces of peace and uh, greenery amongst this kind of urban environment and obviously has a, a one would hope at least anyway a positive impact on, on your mental fit, mental well-being and 
perhaps that that's not something that we've really paid that much attention to in the past when it comes to Roman archaeology? No, no, we haven't. Uh, experience is a big part of uh, our interpretation, for sure. It's also a big part of uh, public engagement and how we educate people about what we're excavating. And I think gardening is something that everybody experiences at least once in their life or does regularly, so it's, it's a little more familiar than other aspects of Roman archaeology. So I think there is that to it. Uh, it does uh, affect your interpretation whether you realize it or not. Mm, yeah. I wonder if there's, uh, well, it probably is almost certainly a lot to be done in terms of experimental archaeology. Oh, what a segue. I know, right? <laughs> you can tell I've done this before. That's um, it. Well, I mean, I suppose there is a lot of experimental archaeology that could that be done in terms, of, uh, in terms of gardening. He says being somebody that used to work in a garden center, uh, but go. it's it's yeah. an in- interesting the idea of how did the Romans? It sounds like really mundane, but how did they actually plant things and then cultivate them? And this is it. How That's... did they? You know, obviously, gardening is it's about growing things naturally, um, literally naturally. Um, but also, it's about arrangement. It's about in terms of you know things like topiary, the way you, you know. You, mold um, bushes hedges etc to look a certain way and I imagine they must have done that as well almost certainly there must have been a lot of that involved but how do we understand that kind of experience I suppose you're gonna you can get some of it from frescoes wall paintings mosaics etc but that doesn't still really give you necessarily the idea of the actual experience of being in a Roman garden no no it doesn't and we still have a lot to learn about it I mean this garden where I excavated had walled frescoes all around the garden so how is the garden itself interacting with the wall paintings and yeah I think you hit the nail on the head there I think it's about how the Romans experienced uh, these spaces not just how we experience it Uh, so it tells us a lot about the environment their intended environment in a way Um, and experimental archaeology is a big part of that and yeah uh, we're moving on to experimental archaeology tell me about experimental archaeology it's like something you know quite a fair bit about um, not as much as I'd like to, but um, I will devote the rest of my life to, <laughs> to figuring it all out. Uh, experimental archaeology, I think, is necessary, um, and I think it is the next large shift in archaeology uh, towards acquiring more data, more regular data, and more reliable data. Um, there are loads of issues around it, of course. Uh, it's a big part of theoretical archaeology. And theoretical archaeology has advanced a lot in the UK, at least um, over the last few decades. And I think experimental archaeology is following close behind. And I'm delighted to see more experiments being uh, explained at presentations um, at track and at RAC. Uh, but they're always, they tend to be anecdotal, mainly because experiments can be very complex, so it's difficult to include them in a 15-minute presentation when you have to show all of your results at the same time. Um, but also because uh, a lot of people still see experimental archaeology as uh, a taboo or maybe an unreliable resource especially among classicists Mm. Um, so I'm going to deviate into around three or four different aspects of experimental archaeology the first is my experience with experimental archaeology was started um, when we were uh, rosy-cheeked 
young undergraduate students at Reading University. Oh, that's nine. years ago. Yeah. Ten years ago we graduated from Reading. Ten years yeah. ago last month. Yeah, yeah I know. Cool. Here yeah. we are now. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's changed. Yeah. Um, we had John Lord pay a visit and do some flint napping for us. I remember that. Yeah. I, I thought that was hypnotic. It was supposed to be one hour, I was told afterwards. Uh, one hour of uh, asking questions and seeing him make one piece. Ended up being three or four hours where mm. we just sat around him. We didn't even do any experiments. I just, like I just watched him. It was incredible. That's like, it. Because something like flint napping, again, it's, I think people don't realise the, the expertise that's needed uh, yeah. to, to do things like that. And you know, these, the, I suppose the natural tendency is that people think about uh, people living in the Neolithic, Mesolithic, whatever, you know, people using stone tools. They think that it's been really basic and really uh, uncultured. And actually, to, to make a good stone tool, you need a really high degree of expertise. You need to have done it over and over again and uh, understand your craft. In a very simple way, that single session uh, opened up a world of different possibilities from experimental archaeology. Because, like you say, it's, it's asking so many questions that we wouldn't have considered. In many cases, we don't consider unless we try and replicate something ourselves, unless we try to experiment. Um, so you're asking the question of uh, how cultured were these people, how skilled were they, were they doing this intentionally? You could also ask where were they getting these, material fr these materials from, um, where did they learn these practices from, how were these practices shared, uh, how uh, difficult was it to produce something, who was producing it in that case, was it just adults, was it young children, uh, who was producing what type of material, it leads to a lot. and then. Uh, once quick, you've produced quick, it quick note on that when I was working at OA I remember them talking about how you know was it down at Bexhill where they had the yeah. site of all the flints and they're saying that Hundreds of now when you record every single individual flint shard you can see like overlapping circles that appear and what you can actually see is where people were sat yeah. napping flint and yeah. they would have been sat there chatting to each other that's they, it that's incredible that's you, best case scenario you see that in archaeology when you can excavate a site that large to that much detail Although uh, I know people went a bit crazy with the whole like taking it down in very short spits. I was there. Three. I was lucky. I consider myself lucky because I was there, but because I was there for only a week. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I know a few people who were there for several months, and I can imagine that they would have lost their minds. As, as much that. as I love archaeology, recording every single fragment of flint they find yeah. is just oh boy, oh boy. I was already an environmental by then, so I was lucky that I was only there for a few weeks, and then straight back to uh, different excavation or to the office. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing how much detail you can get. And this is prehistoric archaeology where experimental archaeology is um, pushed for by academics a lot more than in any other period. Which makes sense because they need these sort of, let's say, uh, theoretical constructs to try and to in interpret a difficult and complicated uh, part of human history. But that's an issue in itself because Romanists will say or argue, some Romanists and classicists, that because we have more evidence, more historical evidence, uh, more artifacts, that we don't need experimental archaeology because we have all the data that we need in front of us. And that's not the case. Uh, it depends. It depends on what aspect you're looking at. It depends on what part of Roman history you want to interpret. Uh, but in my case, in terms of fishing, we have very little evidence and experimental archaeology to me seems the, the next 
best option. This is a quick question. Do you think that some of the hesitancy that people might have about experimental archaeology is related to the idea that it's too close to things like reenactors? Uh, and that that's yes. not taken very seriously as well, that, that people see it as more of a hobby than they do as a, as a science, you might say? I won't say which conference, but we organized a session for experimental archaeology. And we were, if fair enough, it was an additional session, so they were running out of classrooms. But not only were we the only ones outside of the main building where all of the other presentations were being held, we had our room shifted two or three times which wasn't uh, advertised enough. So we ended up with one of the fewest groups of people. I think most of the people there were people giving presentations or who were themselves doing some experimental archaeology in their own research, even though they weren't presented on that day. And that's one of the issues. And when I tried to figure out what was going on and why they did this, um, some of them seemed to think that we were going to experiment on site, that we were there to uh, throw things around, to test things in front of people, to show some of these experiments, which is not the case. You know, when you go to a conference, you're there to present data, the same yeah. as any other academic, and that's what we were there to do because of all the experiments that we were doing, where we were collecting so much data that we think is valuable for other people to use in their research. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's something we need to push for. And yeah, I mean, because it is, 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 as I said earlier, it is a science in terms of, you know, you want to test something out. You've got a hypothesis, and you've got a hypothesis that might be based off of the textual evidence and the material evidence that survived. Yeah. But you can't, as of any scientific experiment, you have to put your hypothesis into practice to see if it actually works. And you can only do that by recreating things and if you can, recreating things in the way they were made at the time and then testing them out and seeing that uh, lead you. And often you, you, you do come to realise that the hypothesis perhaps doesn't hold up scrutiny or, yeah. you know, there are certain aspects of it that don't quite work in the way that people always thought they did. And yeah. it's like anything. Like we understand now that, for example, Tacitus, when Tacitus talks about the Germanic peoples beyond the Rhine, some of what he says is true, a lot of what he says is rubbish. It's stuff that he's heard second, third hand. It's you know stereotypes, etc. Yeah, yeah. We know that everything they say in the text is not true. It's not accurate, and and that's going to be the same for people who write about uh, weapons or write about I don't know agricultural equipment. It's not even like Vitruvius. Vitruvius talking about architecture. There's all kind of debates about you know Vitruvius is writing for an ideal rather than actually in practice. Yeah. You know, this room we always try so hard to say, oh, this room in a Roman house is used for this and this is used for this but actually when you look at the actual evidence it suggests that they were much more flexible in how they use their space than what people would think and what you would think from reading something like Vitruvius yeah we all know about the biases of literary texts but it's not just that it's like you said experiments are there to test theories they're also there to create theories um, you may build something because you have an example that you find in the archaeological record and uh, you just want to reconstruct it uh, and identify a certain aspect of it. Let's say, you know, something very basic. You find a sickle. Uh, you know what the sickle was used for. Uh, you reconstruct it to identify uh, how it would have affected the arm of the wheel. How long could they use it? Uh, Antikythera device is one example. Uh, we weren't sure what this object was used for. There were many theories and uh, the reconstruction shows and in many ways proves some of the theories uh, that it's... Uh, used to identify the, the movement of stars and it's, it's fantastic.
I mean, that's an extreme example. It's not only uh, evidence of uh, the ingenuity back then, but uh, it's it shows just how far we can take experimental archaeology um, and how much data we can collect from it. And I think everything we know about the Antikythera device comes from the reconstructed replica rather than the original. Um, and then there's the experiential aspects of experimental archaeology. What we uh, think, what we feel, how we use something, how that affects our understanding of an object, not only of an object, but of the people who use that object. And whether we like to admit it or not, that always affects our interpretation. Always. And, uh, you know, one aspect that keeps coming up in your podcast is uh, how people got into archaeology in the first place. Whether it was through film, through reading, through uh, family members who are archaeologists, uh, that all impacts how we interpret the past. Uh, and it's, it's something that's, that's good to keep, um, to have an understanding of. Uh, because not only can we check our own biases, but we can understand why other people come to certain conclusions in archaeology. And I think experimental archaeology is a very sobering uh, method of uh, identifying our methodologies, our processes of thought. So last year you had the track session up at Vindelander, yeah. um, all about experimental archaeology. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that. Yeah. had a former guest of the podcast up there, Joe Sona, um, yes. showing off uh, musical instruments and former Kent alumni as well, Faith up there showing off her uh, late antique dress as well so you had a number but you had a number of people come in uh, who were doing different things and it does seem to be quite a growing field so what was that like bringing a bunch of people together for looking at different aspects and different ways because just quickly no i suppose when we talk about experimental maybe there's a tendency as well to think about things like tools and weapons but clothing instruments all these kind of things as well are you know part stuff that we can remake and or stuff that we can well yeah forge no not forge is the wrong word but they're all they're they're all things as well that we we see in images from frescoes from mosaics or uh we think we know how they'd sound but it's actually not until we make them that we can see how people really looked and how you know these instruments really sounded but yeah how what was it like bringing all those people together and actually having a a whole couple of days that were devoted to experimental it was amazing it's funny you should say that because yeah one of the intentions was for it not to be uh, military because a lot of the experiment and that's not because uh, we don't want to include military but a lot of work has been done on um, replicas of Roman military Roman arms and armor Roman weapons uh, military aspects Bill Griffiths uh, who uh, took part at a session at track as well on uh, experimental archaeology and who has uh, done a lot for experimental archaeology published one of the what I would call the only comprehensive volumes on uh, experiments in Roman archaeology uh, but they're all military based um, the general Roman military studies obviously so it's going to focus on the army so I wanted to focus on different aspects of Roman archaeology and uh, it's amazing how many people are conducting these experiments, whether they are able to contribute to conferences and to published academic work. It's a different, different uh, topic altogether, and that's one of the issues that we wanted to raise. Um, so 
it was uh, this was a I'd say a skeleton crew it was uh, I gotta give thanks to to Matt uh, for all of uh, his works and efforts in organizing this conference um, it was a difficult time uh, which we'll probably talk about later on uh, the difficulties in doing a PhD which I am still doing uh, so it was difficult to organize something like this at the same time and uh, it, I have to thank everybody who attended because they were fantastic all of these experiments all of these replicas that we looked at uh, were a perfect example not only of the issues that we all face in experimental archaeology uh, but of the potential of experimental archaeology they all came up with novel data that will go a long way if anybody is looking at musical instruments uh, at clothing which we looked at at jewelry at um, fishing which I did a, a few experiments on on the day at cooking hairstyles uh, and uh, well, how should I describe it uh, the effects of uh, Roman uh, missiles on skull Oh, on, well. <laughs> a, on a cow skull yeah that was uh, a fantastic one as well uh, which is not quite military it's target practice but you know it could I was going to be... say did any of them hit the bullseye yeah yeah a few uh, there was a pun in there as well yeah <laughs> in that case no <laughs> none of them hit the, the the ball in the eye sadly <laughs> that would have been perfect I'm sure there are examples like that I think I've seen examples throughout Britain of uh testing I'm hoping on dead cows I'm now going to I'm now going to go away and look up where the phrase bullseye comes from why is it you throw an object and if you get it where you want to hit it it's in the eye of a bull do share it when you find out but yeah if you want to get more information on these then look it up Uh, track camp we called it and this was in 2018 in September Uh, the information is on the track website it's also on XARC website and I'm hoping this is the first of Many more to come after the PhD. Is, is there any is there any major resource for experimental archaeology in terms of are there any journals or anything that yes. are devoted to it? I would say well yes yes we have EXARC, um, EXARC, and uh, they're fantastic. I mean we're lucky to have them. Uh, my concern is the absence of more Roman experiments. Uh, and that has nothing to do with Exarch, that has to do with how difficult it is for classicists and Roman archaeologists uh, to find support in doing these experiments. And um, yeah, if you need to look up any experiments outside of the Roman period, and there are several Roman uh, articles also published by Exarch, they have a journal, uh, go to their website, you can access a lot of articles online, um, you can also become a member, you can attend their conferences. Uh, they're pretty international, so they will have conferences uh, in many different countries. Uh, so if you're outside of the UK, uh, keep an eye on them as well. And they provide a lot of support, which they did for us as well. Uh, and I'm hoping that what I would like to do is to make it easier for people to access data on experimental archaeology in Roman studies. And that's what we're pushing towards now. So this workshop uh, was the start of... It was an attempt for us to gather a group of people, identify common issues, uh, but also develop networks that we can then exploit to, for 
promoting experimental archaeology for moving forward and that's what we're doing now we're editing a monograph uh, we're going to publish 14 papers on the subject many of which took part at track camp some of which took part at the previous track uh, workshop organized in Edinburgh and uh, I'm hoping that we will have if not annual biannual workshops where people anybody who's interested um, get in touch with me on Twitter which is the easiest way right now just Lee Grana at Lee Grana uh, G-R-A-N-A uh, but my hopes are that we develop uh, a better a more accessible um, should we say database uh, for any academics any classes who just want to incorporate the data that we are producing that we are generating in their own research. They don't have to be experimental archaeologists to use experimental archaeology. My hopes, I'm falling behind with uh, with social media. I'm falling behind with technology. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Social media is a bit of a bit of a poison chalice. Social media opens up so many avenues and is such a beneficial tool in some respects and in other ways. You do think, am I better off not being on this at all? It's. Uh, it's difficult. It's difficult uh, to in using social media. I think in terms of balancing the good and the bad. So sometimes I think falling behind on it's not the worst thing in the world. It's good to have a bit of a. I think we're still one of the the big issues um, with experimental archaeology. Uh, what well, with archaeology, I reckon one of the biggest issues with archaeology itself is um, public outreach, social engagement. We rely on the public and their interest in archaeology for us to have a job at the end of the day because. Uh, all of the commercial work that we do, um, all of the academic work that we do is based on the government's understanding and the people's understanding of uh, what we're doing and their interest in it. If they don't have that, then uh, we're going to have fewer and fewer jobs and that seems to be the way we're headed. So I, I noticed that, I think, what's the best way to explain it? Um, we all saw the benefits of Time Team, I think especially us growing up in that period. Um, just because they were explaining archaeology to the general public. And it doesn't matter how simplistic some archaeologists might argue it was, and I would argue m many of the excavations they conducted were very professional and, um, and very complex as well, even for archaeologists to get their heads around. Uh, they did more for archaeology than most other institutions, organizations in this country. And you notice this, especially when you go abroad to other countries, and they didn't have something like Time Team, and they don't have the same acknowledgement for uh, the physical past that, that they do in Britain. Uh, and I think this is something that we have to deal with. And you've already had people on your podcast who deal with social media, and they do an amazing job. Um, and I think we need that, but we need something more. I think we've we dumb it down a bit too much. Um, you know, at open days when we talk to people, we tend to cater for children more than we do for adults because we're trying to attract families, and that's one of the only ways we get around it. Uh, but I want any experiments that we conduct to be accessible to the public, whether it's through YouTube, through I'd rather it be through a website, but that's because of my uh, lack of understanding of how to use social media properly. But I think things like Twitter, and I was trying to keep up with, with Twitter, with Facebook, um, and with other with Instagram 
and I don't think that you can use it as an archaeological tool other than to advertise your research to peers. Um, I think also as well, when you're talking about things like Instagram, we were talking about this before we started recording to some extent, I find it's very difficult on Instagram. Instagram is the biggest social media website now, and it has so much reach, but then how do you carve out a niche for yourself? And also you're, you're almost competing against a lot of other yeah. accounts, which are being done in a way that people are spending a lot of time curating their photographs and they're they're taking photographs from other places like very impressive there are there are a lot of instagram accounts which are kind of archaeology based but they're not necessarily archaeologists that are running them and it's a case of how do you carve out a niche on something like instagram for people in a more academic sphere i've noticed that there's a real contrast as well that you can see people in the world of archaeology who are very i would say successful on things like twitter but that success doesn't seem to have necessarily transferred itself when they've tried to do Instagram and I think Instagram now has been around for it's been around for getting on probably close to a decade now I think it was certainly around when we were doing our MA I remember that yeah. it being yeah. around then so it's almost been around as long as Facebook and I don't It's. It, I think the problem with social media is it becomes very difficult to carve out a niche for yourself in it when you're trying to get on board with it at, at a later stage if you're in there early then people will flock to you as they come on to it but if you're trying to set yourself up on it when there's already millions of people already on there, other than the people that already know you, what what is the attraction for people that don't That's to it. gravitate towards you? But That's I think what you're saying about being able to demonstrate experiments um, in particular, I think, would be a very attractive way of demonstrating the, the, what you can do in you terms of You've got to find the middle ground because you can show pictures of what you've done and then people think, oh, wow, that's amazing, and it'll stop there. Uh, if you're lucky, they'll try and find out more about it. And then what happens if they click on a link? Does it go to an article that only academics can access for the first 24 months yeah. uh, because of the embargo issues? Uh, and it's the same at the other extreme. When you publish an article, who's going to read it? Um, and with experimental archaeology, the biggest issue could be that academics don't want to read it because they don't think uh, it affects them in any way. Um, they don't think that they can use the data. And that's one of the biggest issues I've found with experimental archaeology. Um, through my experiences and I think the middle ground would be providing all of this data not just as academic publications but as data that is digestible by the general public uh, that can also be adopted and used by academics in a series of ways I won't go into detail now Uh, I'm still trying to figure that out for my own experiments Uh, but I think that once we identify a successful way of doing this it's something that I'd like to promote among other archaeologists other Romanists perhaps through some form of medium that we managed to come up with as a group yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay watching the tide roll away the experimental archaeology largely ties in with your PhD thesis that you've been working on, which is fishing. I've been desperately trying to think up a pun to, to go into it, but I, I just couldn't think of one. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm going to jump in the river. <laughs> That'd be very fitting, wouldn't you? Yeah, it would. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Probably so... find a few things. Uh, tell, me about the, tell me about the PhD. Fishing right, well, in the... Oh, fishing... Is it fishing everywhere in the Roman world now? Or no, it's Roman Spain? Britain. Oh, Britain. It's okay. Roman Britain. It was Roman Spain when I started the PhD. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's the final year of uh, part-time. Uh, but experimental archaeology is actually a small part of this. 
uh, it's something like I was saying it's something that came about when we were on undergrads and it's something I did a lot after graduating I joined the Oxford Paleolithic Technology Society I got to see got to try many different experiments and see the benefits of it for prehistoric research uh, and then I started my PhD uh, I was looking at the shift from the large-scale fish source production centers and salted fish product uh, centers in southern Spain to northwestern Spain, uh, which there was a little bit of evidence for, quite a lot of it as fishbone remains rather than processing sites. And that fell through because of the usual politics, hmm. um, especially international politics. But... Um, the case study site was given to a local student, so I had the choice of looking for somewhere else or taking my supervisor's advice and looking at Roman Britain, which we knew was an area that hadn't really been studied before. Um, the way experiments fit into it is I was asking way too many questions rather than answering them. And I realized that anybody who had written anything on the subject was asking the same questions and looking at alternative means to try and in interpret them, which usually was ethnographic studies. So they're looking at prehistoric fishing, maybe modern fishing, traditional methods used in the Mediterranean up until the start of the 20th century. And uh, my basic ideas were how can we trust these comparisons with ancient technology? Um, one simple way is to put them to the test and try and reconstruct ancient fishing tools and equipment based on what little archaeological evidence we do have. So it's a very small part of the PhD because in Roman Britain we don't have any nets surviving. What we do have are fishing weights, fishing hooks, uh, and net production needles or shuttles. And these are the objects I'm studying. And several questions were... Um, I mean, the first question that I would ask, especially I did ask when I started, was how do we interpret these objects? Because very few people have written anything about it. And I realized that this was going to be difficult. This was uh, going to cause a lot of problems for the PhD. I had very few ways around it. Uh, there were no functioning methodologies I could follow. A lot of it comes from Mediterranean studies of uh, local regional assemblages. So there's no holistic, comprehensive approach. Uh, and it's developed into more a, uh, a, I wouldn't say theoretical archaeology, but it's, it, it is very analytical of the methodology of the processes of investigation rather than uh, the interpretation of archaeological remains. I was going to say, because archaeological remains, they can't... Well, I suppose there is, in some respects, an abundance, because you can have a lot of fish bones from a site. But how do you study those fish bones? What do how they do you tell study you about them? fish bones? Also, I would suppose that if you went back to earlier excavations, fish bones weren't very well recorded as well. Oh, yeah. It's probably much more of a recent phenomenon in the same way that quantifying faunal remains and looking at the... You know, contextualising everything in the archaeological record that, that is much more common now than it used to be if you go back to like the early 20th century nobody would give a damn about fish bones like oh, in yeah. the same way they didn't really give a damn about half the stuff they discovered it was more about finding statues and mosaics etc and it's uh, there's been that shift but i guess your your data can only go 
back so far in terms of excavations, in terms of when they were recorded. Yeah. And there's probably just a drop-off point where that sort of thing, a bit like um, you know, people that study uh, environmental archaeology in terms of you know, pollen analysis, yeah. uh, 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 plant remains, because people just wouldn't have ever thought to really look for that stuff before or, or record it. That's it. I think we're lucky that there's been such a push for archaeobotany because a lot of the fish bones that we have now come from and that we have since the 1970s come from subsamples taken for archaeobotany and we're lucky that the residues have shown fish bones and it's a shame because that gives us an idea of how many fish bones there could have been at that site I should say uh, first of all that fish bones are probably the most studied aspect of fishing in Roman Britain Alison Locker published a paper in Pisces Diversis in um, 2007 uh, and that is a look at all of the fishbone remains uh, from all of the sites, I think 109 sites throughout Britain and um, it was a fantastic paper, it's only a few pages long but that has been the basis for most interpretations of fishing in the ancient world, I am in Roman Britain that is and not much has changed. Uh, the evidence hasn't really pushed us to interpret it in any other way. It hasn't really highlighted any differences. That fishing in Roman Britain wasn't as intensive and it wasn't as important a, a food source as it was in the Mediterranean, hmm. uh, which is a shame. But there is evidence of large-scale fishing. There is evidence of fish processing of uh, attempts to produce local variations of fish sauce and salted products. They're the sort of things that require more detail, but um, my study is of fishing. And uh, I, I'm calling it, let's say, Haliotic, um, Roman Haliotic study. It's the processes of fishing, the tools, the methods, the... And I would have liked it to have included the people to be a, an anthropological study as well of who these fishermen were in Roman Britain. Uh, where did they come from? Were they native? Were they Roman? Were they coming from mainland Europe? Uh, the answer is probably yes to all of these. I mean, they're a mixture yeah. of people. Fishing is very diverse. I suppose as well that in much the same way with other aspects of society in Roman Britain, that when Roman, when Britain is annexed as a Roman province... It opens up a lot of opportunities for merchants and tradesmen to come in, and I suppose fishermen, particularly to what is an island. Yeah. It must be a very attractive proposition because that opens up loads of new sea to fishing, essentially, that they didn't have. And I guess the Mediterranean is probably quite a crowded market as well. There are probably new avenues to explore commercially. In England that is strange. I mean, that it is very strange. If you look at it on paper, you'd think that the islands would be the, the biggest uh, fishing industries. Uh, but they're not throughout history. I mean, some of the largest uh, fisheries in the world come from Spain, Portugal, uh, countries where port towns are very important, uh, but where coastal areas aren't as um, large as in Britain. I mean, it is an island. It's an island with several other islands, um, and it has access to species coming from the south, uh, from the Atlantic as well as uh, northern sea species like cod and uh, herring which we have exploited a lot since the 12th century I was going to say what, what, so what, what fish were they actually eating in Rome, Britain? everything 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 they could catch absolutely everything um, there wasn't 
it depends on what aspect you're looking at. There wasn't one predominant species that they were trying to target, as far as we can tell. If you're identifying fish processing, so salting, then that would be clupeids. So they're looking at herring, they're looking at shads, um, and small species that migrate in large quantities uh, into estuaries, into inshore areas, and therefore are accessible by fishermen from the coast uh, using a boat or even from land. So they're the ones that would have uh, been caught to produce these large-scale products, byproducts. Uh, but they were catching flatfish in the same waters uh, with several ways. They were using traps throughout the Thames. They were catching uh, freshwater species further inland. A lot of villa sites have one or two hooks. Uh, I can't remember which, uh, let's say, golden age archaeologist wrote about the household, the average villa household, including one fisherman uh, who would catch fish regularly for... Uh, the villa owners and it's that sort of picture hasn't really changed okay and I wouldn't say anything to change it because it seems to be the case oh, really? I just want to know more about what practices these were and so how. this guy with this fisherman would be attached to just one household or he'd serve in numerous households um, how do we know how can we tell yeah, yeah, it probably would have been attached to one household these hooks are found I guess you have some in proximity with... to the villa because obviously as well, these people are part of larger networks. They could be and, slaves. They yeah. could be the local villa owner who wants to go for a jolly and do some fishing in the river. Yeah. could be anything. And we know of, from the classic, the, what the texts do tell us is that fishing was important throughout all social classes, but for different reasons. Um, the poorest would fish, the richest would fish. Mm. Uh, it depends on what, it depends on when, it depends on why. And that hasn't changed. Fishing is still one of the largest activities on the planet um, in terms of food resources it's also one of the most um, what's the word the highest grossing sports on the planet okay. uh, it brings in billions of dollars to the states is there any evidence that the Romans looked at fishing in a recreational capacity yes yeah we, we hear of uh, Pliny the Younger talking about being able to fish from his bedroom window oh, really? his villa in Capri um, Pliny the Elder as well describes certain people fishing uh, I think Cicero you have several sources talking about fishing with a line and hook this is with a line and hook always not with a net uh, so they're catching one or two species they're doing it for fun and it's great what's interesting about Roman Britain and one aspect that does need to be looked at further is the army the potential for soldiers fishing whether this was one way of obtaining more food mm. uh, or so whether it was something that they did for fun on the site because there is uh, a text that states that fishing should not be allowed in the army a soldier should not be allowed to catch fish oh, they really? should not be allowed to go fishing that's interesting because I know if you read for example uh, Dave Mattingly's book Imperial Possession about Rome Britain mm -hmm. uh, he talks in there about studies that have been done for example, there's a much higher concentration of pork that's found in military sites. There is a particular, you might say, military-esque diet that exists. Uh, whether or not that's like the official diet or not, but it just, you know, stuff's obviously imported into into the forts. And it's interesting that they're actually then perhaps legally prevented from being able to actually catch, as you say, fish. And that perhaps then forms a smaller part of the diet as a result of that, which is perhaps different to, say, the local population. That's it. I mean, this is the case in the mainland. 
and you'd expect to to see the same in Britain. But uh, we can't deny that there are many military sites, forts where uh, fishing objects have been found, netting needles, fishing hooks, lead weights, and fishbone remains, of course. Uh, also, the only literary text, the only written source that we have for Roman Britain about fishing is a Vindalanda tablet requesting a fishing net among a fowling net to catch birds and a hunting net. So that tells us a little bit about who was producing these nets as well. It wasn't just one fisherman who was making nets for everyone, at least in the army. There was a specialist who was making nets in general. And nets had many functions. They could be used uh, for carrying objects. They could be used for meats, for, for processing, drying or smoking meat. They could be used uh, for sleeping on, you know, they... Gladiators? For gladiators, as traps. Millions? I'm getting that wrong and somebody's going to correct me. Yeah, they've got the trident and they've got the net. There's a the particular type of gladiator. Somebody's going to somebody's gonna tweet me or something and correct that. I'll but. go with that, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, because you've made some nets as well, haven't you, in terms I have, of experiments? Yes. Uh, well, that's where the experimental archaeology in terms of my PhD started. I've made a net with the Oxford Paleolithic Technology Society. And I made a net that I uh, sold for a television program on Channel 5, which was 10,000 BC. And they needed um, some Neolithic equipment. And I helped out producing a 25-meter long net, I think it was, by one-and-a-half meter depth. Uh, so you use that as a... It'd be known as a Sain net. Uh, you'd surround the targeted fish and bring them into shore. And it's exactly the same method that the Romans would have used as well. The technology doesn't change for 12,000 years. It's mm. only changed in the last 100 years. And it was great. It was great feedback because even though I didn't get to go out and see this net being used, um, I was being told by a colleague who was there uh, how it was changing, how they were changing their methods. Obviously, this is a reality TV show for Channel 5, so these people don't know what they're doing, which <laughs> is great in itself because you get to see how they, their, their thought pattern, what they're thinking, how they think they can use the object, uh, and how it results. And one thing they did do is they got lazy and they left the net in the lake, in this case. It wasn't the seaside, it was a lake. And after a few days, it started to grow um, several things on it. It started to go green. It had a lot of algae. And rather than destroy the net, this made it invisible to many fish, like pike, who would swim into the net and get caught in it. So it acted as a gill net in that case, even though it was intended to be that. Uh, and they caught fish that way. They used it as a trap. Uh, so there are many different ways of using certain nets. They didn't have any weights in the net I produced. Uh, so that's one of the issues they had with using it as a saying net. And it was just interesting to see how it developed. So, I developed these skills that I then considered included in my PhD, and I moved on to cast nets. And these are one of the most iconic Roman nets. If you ever see several mosaics, include them the mosaic from Seuss, uh, several Roman mosaics from Pompeii as well. It's a circular net, it's thrown, it's the, your typical bag net. Some people would call it a bag net. That's also a different type. Um, and I think it's one of the most used nets 
but most underrated. It's a net that uh, researchers in the 1970s called um, a very low-yielding tool. But we know that they were being used in the early 20th century. Uh, and in Spain they were called uh, todos, which means they catch everything. They became illegal there uh, until recently. And actually now you need a special license to use them because they do catch anything without prejudice. So if you have large bodies of fish, which you would have in healthy environments, you could catch a lot of fish. So this, I would argue, would have been one of the nets that were being used for the processing sites as well. They're not just to catch a few fish. And the way we identify them in the archaeological record is through the lead weights that's all we have left in terms of Roman Britain that's all we have left um, but we don't know enough about these objects and that's one aspect that I'm looking at in the PhD uh, depending on the size depending on the I wouldn't say typology because there is no typology for them uh, how can we determine what type of net was being used and to what extent and that's the experiments that I'm conducting, conducting now are to determine this, are we able to interpret the type of tool based on the few remains that we do have. Do you fish yourself? Yeah, yeah. My family's from a small fishing village in Spain, in northwest Spain. Uh, it used to be a whaling town, and uh, when that became illegal, uh, they turned back to the sardine, which was what was caught for thousands of years. And yeah, I've grown up fishing every summer, and I love it. And it's something that I really didn't consider as, as a subject that could be studied, especially in Roman studies. It's interesting how many people, though, uh, their interests outside of archaeology come to combine with their own archaeological uh, studies. But, you know, as you say, you didn't really consider that, but now they've kind of merged into one. It's interesting how many people find some sort of avenue where there is that overlap. Yeah, I, well, that's it, um, and some overlap. I mean, it's taken a few years to get there. It started uh, during the Masters, uh, where you also were. I was going to say, Leicester University. I was going to say, tell me about your time at Reading and Leicester, and why was I the best part of it? But <laughs> we can come back to that later. <laughs> you made graduation worthwhile. Um, yeah, remember David Mattingly in the Roman Economy? Uh, did you do that? module? No, my no, you were doing optional it. modules were early Christian Europe That's and it. late antique North Africa. Clearly had no effect on me whatsoever. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, I was doing the Roman economy and we were looking for quite a bit, quite a bit of the course, we were looking at the agrarian sector, which was obviously the largest economic sector in the Roman Empire. Um, bread and circuses. That's yeah, the way yeah, yeah. it originally goes. Didn't have coffee back then. That's it. Did they? Uh, no, they didn't have coffee in the Roman Empire, did they? Did they? Not that I know no, of. No, They may have fallen. Something else to look into, there you yeah. go. So many questions coming out. Yeah. That's it. And, uh, yeah, he told us we had to write an essay on a non-agrarian sector of the economy. And we had a few essays on honey. On Well, I say a few. We didn't have many students, so we had one essay on honey. We had one on mining, uh, one on the silk trade. And I thought... Why not look at fishing? I don't think I've ever done it. Yeah. Uh, and I wrote that essay in one day. That was four coffees followed by four beers at the library. <laughs> I'm glad they sold beer at that library. And uh, I wrote that essay in one day, and I think it was one of the highest um, scores I got. Yeah. The highest marks. Just 
just on a quick kind of side note, as you mentioned, uh, we do the Masters together. Also, I've had people on the podcast before. For example, Adam Parker also did Roman Its Neighbours year before. I can't remember now if Adam was the year before us or after us. I think it was before us. There's been a number of people that passed through that Masters, but this year coming at Kent, I'm teaching a Masters module for the first time. And I'm really looking forward to it because it is going to be a very small group, probably. And I still credit, though, the Masters, the Roman Disabled Masters at Leicester, as really being a very formative period. I think that was where I really started to... I don't know how to really determine, but it's where I suddenly felt like, oh, this is really what I want to do. I mean, I always wanted to do archaeology, but I suppose that was when I first realised that academia was my area and that I had a very strong interest and... um, I don't know, and I, I guess you found that as well because there was so few of us in the Masters. I mean, there was only what seven of us. Um, it was so intense as well, and you couldn't hide that it really kind of pushed you to up your game, yeah, and immerse yourself in it. But as you say, you, you, you as a result, you kind of were forced to really develop as well. And I think for me, I sort of look at yeah, I look at the Masters. If you look at my tra- trajectory in terms of a curve, that's where the curve like really picks up on a really steep gradient. I think so. I think so. It was. I also did a, a 360 because before the Masters, um, we took a year off between the two, mainly because of the credit crisis. So it was kind of a forced year off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No jobs. No, no jobs. jobs at just all. Volu- <laughs> yeah, I did volunteering and I worked uh, in blacksmithing, and we were doing. Rep- we were making replicas of Roman arms and armor, and. Uh, so in a way, I, already, I had already imagined myself taking the experimental archaeology route. And then the masters that, kind of threw me off. When I was uh, on in between undergraduate and masters, I did some blacksmithing, purely, oh, yeah. purely like volunteer basis. But yeah. the garden centre I worked at was next to a farm which had a blacksmith. And you could go on a Tuesday evening and you could just play around, basically. Uh, not literally, because you'd play yourself. But, but yeah. you know, you were allowed... To, you could basically... He would teach you the kind of basic principles of blacksmithing. Yeah. And I found it very uh, cathartic as well, yeah. in terms of like oh, yeah. you do it. And you, it's one of those things that you do where you kind of zone out while you're doing it. But uh, That unemployment pressure, you can really <laughs> release it. It was great, yeah. We come from that generation, yeah. don't we? We I, take I, a year off to go and do blacksmithing, not yeah. to travel the world. Well, I actually had it in my mind even then, for, um, a bit like what you ended up doing. I didn't go down that route myself, but I did the blacksmithing partly with one eye on the possibility. I knew I was going to go on and do the masters, but I had one eye on doing something in the masters to do experimental archaeology. So I thought, yeah. well, I could do some metal work and get some experience of it and take it from there. I didn't do that because I went down different trajectory when I started the Masters and ended up going lay antiquity, more religion, etc. But um, yeah, I think as well, that's, I mean, this is one of the things that's come out, I think, of talking to people on the podcast. There's there's, there's many different avenues that you can go down uh, with archaeology. And for many people, archaeology is is a hobby. It's it's a recreational activity that they like to do over a weekend or whatever. I mean, we've done it as a career, but for a lot of other people, it's, it's not like that. It's purely for enjoyment. But you know, for some people, they might do excavation and think, oh, this isn't really for me. But experimental archaeology and getting into that as a hobby is, I think, quite an appealing prospect. Oh, yeah. I mean, this, this is what we come back to over and over again, the idea that archaeology is not simply just digging a hole in the ground, that there are many, many spheres in archaeology. And experimental archaeology, I think, bringing this back around to what we were discussing about earlier, 
has a wider appeal because it's an avenue of archaeology that a lot of the public can get involved in and do. That's it. You notice the benefits of public engagement. Uh, not only in... I mean, ethnographic studies, I said, was an aspect that was uh, a little... How should I say it? Um, unreliable. Uh, but necessary because there were few other alternatives. Uh, so experimental archaeology is something that I've tried to use instead of ethnographic studies. But I'm also using ethnography um, to look at ancient fishing practices. And it's experimental archaeology that has provided me with uh, access to the general public and people who are skilled in these traditional methods. I've met quite a few fishermen. Uh, who come and say, you know, I've worked in the docks for until the last 10 years and modern fishing has uh, completely changed. But when I was a child, I would do this and I'd say, show me. And it would be a method that is described in a 19th century text about traditional fishing methods uh, using nets that are very similar from what we know and from examples that we have recovered in Egypt to the Roman ones. So it's it, it brings it all together. I mean, we've we study the human past and human objects and we're all humans so we should be including um, everybody in our research absolutely everybody and I think that's the point and it's it's uh, I think experimental archaeology is one of the best avenues for um, bringing back this public engagement that I think we've lost a bit yeah absolutely yeah I think that's quite a good note to to go out on but before we do so I will ask you already mentioned Twitter handle but if people want to contact you we should just quickly say that the track workshop up at Vinderlander there will be a volume coming out papers from that as well that you're currently in the process of putting together yes um, so that will be on the horizon yes uh, anything else people should look out for at all you want anything else you want to raise awareness of Any- I am rusty with social media but we are working on making all of this accessible via Facebook, via Twitter, uh, and via via a website that I'm hoping to have finished soon, uh, where you'll be able to find videos and texts and the bibliography in case you're interested in, in reading about experimental archaeology and Roman studies. Uh, for now, send me any messages, get in contact with me via Twitter. I won't give you my email address because my university has decided to put my full four names, <laughs> followed by their two names um but do get in touch with me and i will stay in touch with anybody who does uh about the next stages of uh roman experimental archaeology hopefully as you say more more workshops on the horizon definitely more build workshops it, on the horizon I the basic principle is build a community really that's it that's it i think that's the most important thing uh we build a community because the community we currently have that we've been working on for the last two years it's not just archaeologists it's professionals it's um, amateur archaeologists it's people who are enthusiastic uh, and when I say professionals I mean chefs who are telling us about cooking mm. in a way that archaeologists couldn't uh, I'm tired of listening to archaeologists describe an activity that they've never attempted themselves and you've had a few people on the podcast already say that just by attempting uh, to use or to handle these replicas, they've already had a different idea of how to acknowledge and interpret these objects, and that's what we should all be doing. Mm. Classicists and archaeologists alike. And as you say, to find you on Twitter, it's at Lee Grana. 
at Lee Grana. Pretty straightforward. G R A N A. Brilliant. Right. Anything else to add or? Um. No. No. <laughs> right. Well, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you. for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian. Diocletian.